to those of you who are joining us online, welcome to you. We are always honored that you would take the time to uh, seek out our site, whether you're catching us on YouTube or Facebook or through our website, but we're glad to have you be a part of worship today. It is good to be back home and to be with you, and um, I have just heard again and again what a great job Stone did uh, last week, and what an encouraging thing indeed. What an encouraging thing to to watch the life of uh, young leaders like Stone and Caroline as they are developing and sowing their time and energy into the lives of our students. That is good stuff. Somebody jokingly said to me this morning with, uh, with leaders like Ken and John and Stone who step up and hit a home run when you're out of town. You may not need to go out of town. You know, I, I said, man, that, there's nothing that makes me happier than to know that God is just raising up such rock-solid leaders who are who are living out their faith and who communicate that well, so I'm happy to hear that. Uh, Tony, thanks for doing a great job leading us today. I know everybody, you know, different stuff fits us uh, different ways, but I still love the old hymns. I love these Sundays. I, I always appreciate the whole band and praise team leading us, but it is always sweet to get to go back and, and to sing the hymns and to be reminded of the joy and reality of heaven. It's been so long since I've heard that wonderful Dottie Rambo song, one of my favorites. And as we were singing that, uh, just what a great reminder of a reality that I think that we probably don't camp on very often. That to simply be in the presence of Christ transforms us. We, we're curious about heaven. We're curious about so many different details about heaven and what the place is going to be like and what we're going to do. But that song is a great reminder that to be in the presence of Jesus is the thing that's going to make everything else dim by comparison. Because whether it's in heaven or encountering Christ in life here now, it is, it is his greatness, it is his goodness, it's his glory that sort of rearranges everything for us, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it amazing how... When you have those personal encounters where Jesus just shows up in your life, whether it's in a worship service or in the circumstances of life, you can't easily put it into words what the presence of Jesus does to just change you. And it's not because he's so shiny and, and so big. It's, it's who he is. It is the core of who he is. Everything that exists finds its purpose, its meaning for existence in him. Everything just becomes different in, in his presence. And so it's been good to just celebrate that, that, that we are being drawn toward him in that way. As we were singing that, I was reminded of you know, our theme verse for freedom in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and the very next verse goes on to say about the, the glory of Jesus that we are being transformed into that very same glory by the, by the presence of the Lord. So it's cool to just see that taking place and to know that God is progressively revealing himself to us. Well, today we are pressing on into uh, Genesis 12. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there with me. We are working through the Abraham story, and I, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you that two weeks ago, the sermon that I told you I'm going to preach today, I'm not going to preach today. I'm going to preach it next Sunday, 
and I want you to be here. It's such an important message. I've looked forward to sharing that with you. But the, um, as I was starting to prepare for that, the Holy Spirit just so impressed on me that I was skipping a really important truth that we did not need to, could not afford to skip over. So we're going to just camp on the end of uh, chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. And I think you'll see why as we get into this. We're in a series, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, that uh, is entitled, it starts with just one. And it's a reminder that every significant movement of God, the Lord will always start with one person. There will be one man or one woman that he picks out, that he singles out, and he begins to reveal himself and what he is about to do to them. And then he begins to multiply through them a vision of what God wants to do and of what it means to walk in the presence and power of God. And and a movement begins to unfold through that. And Abraham is a classic example of this. But today, what we're going to look at as we consider the life of Abraham comes as a little bit of a surprise because what we're going to see today is a significant detour that Abraham took from the will of God, from the plan of God. And I think it's probably really helpful and instructive for us to recognize that here, here's Abraham. He's absolutely one of the towering giants of the faith. Many would refer to him as the father of the faith. And yet you're going to see today how far he could wander from the will of God, what poor choices that he could make, and how God ended up working through that and what had to happen for him to be restored to a healthy place. And there's just good stuff for us to learn in this. So what we're going to talk about today is the detours of life. I don't know about you, but I hate detours. And doesn't it seem like since the first of the year, Fairhope has been nothing but a bunch of detours? Hadn't you just been sick to death of it? You can't get downtown. You haven't been able to in January or February because of, you try and go down Fairhope Avenue. You can't get down Fairhope Avenue because of the detours. You try and come through Section Street. You can't get to downtown on Section Street. It's just all detours downtown. We hate that. Just wandering around, trying to find where you want to get to. Now, reality is sometimes detours are necessary, and obviously the city's keeping us from falling in a hole by doing these detours as they're cutting out big chunks of the road to do utility work. So sometimes God is the one who creates detours for us, just like the city's been doing. Ultimately, we know they're doing something good, something that we need, and even though it's a nuisance and we're having to go out of our way, they're giving us a detour to keep us in a safe place. God will do that in our lives, and we're grateful that he does. We may not be grateful in the moment because detours are inconvenient. When God takes you off the path of what you had planned to do this, you know, today or this week or this year, have you had God do that to you recently? Where he just, he threw you a curveball. He sent you on a detour. You thought you knew what you were doing. And God said, no, that's not what's happening. I mean, even what I'm preaching today, it's a detour. It's a detour about detours. I didn't plan to preach this today. God frequently gives us detours. It's something that's different from the course that we thought we were going to take. Now, we, we should be grateful for those because when he does that, it's either because he is keeping us from doing something that would have put us in danger or, you know, something like that. It, it would have caused some kind of peril. Or he takes us on a detour because there's something that, that our plan was going to make us miss. And God says, oh, I don't want you to miss this. I'm going to take you on the scenic route because there's somebody you needed to meet. There's something you needed to learn. And so those are good detours. But then there are other detours that don't come from God. They come either from the enemy or they come from us. 
These are self-imposed detours where we get off the course that God has laid out for us because we figured out a better way to go. Oh, I can have what I want if I just choose my own path. I can find love and romance on my own terms. I can find financial success my own way. I'll pick my own path. I'll get there quicker. And we wind up on a detour that takes us to places that we never dreamed that we would go. Those are the detours we're going to talk about today. And what we're going to read about is a major detour in Abraham's life and the effects that it had and what it took for him to get back on track. As we look together, we're, we're really starting in uh, verse 10, which is where we left off two weeks ago. But I want to rewind and just repeat verses 8 through 9. Just to remind you of where we are in the story, God picks Abram as he's already a senior adult living in Ur of the Chaldees among pagans, and, and he makes promises to him about what he's going to do. And so he's had to pick up and take his wife and travel, and, and they've gone a great distance. They, they initially didn't do everything exactly the way that God had said. He said, leave your family behind, and he brought some family along that he wasn't supposed to bring, and he said, go to the land that I'll show you. And they stopped short and said, well, we're just going to settle here, and that wasn't where God was leading them. And so God had to work them through that. And what we saw last week is it took some time, but Abraham finally followed through, and he got to the land that God was promising to him as an eternal inheritance for him and all of his descendants. And so the place that we got to two weeks ago, we are starting to see the fulfillment of what God has promised. And, and you remember the gigantic promises that God has given to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12. He's saying, this is what I'm about to do. I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, which means gigantic protection. And ultimately, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you and your descendants. Six gigantic promises. And so the point we got to when we last left off, he finally has entered into the land. God's giving all of this land to Abram and his descendants, and now he's going to just begin to fulfill these promises, a great place of victory. So that's where we're picking up verse 8. From there, in the heart of the promised land, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. All I'm going to say is just remember that line. We'll come back to it. It has been a recurring line that's going to wind up being a sort of important word picture. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. Really important line again. In this place, just outside of Bethel, he's, once again, he's built an altar, and he is, he's seeking the Lord. And then Abram set out, and he continued toward the Negev. Now we pick up the next phase of the story. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Let's pause there for just a second. In one paragraph, the train has just gotten off the tracks at unspeakable levels. I mean, first of all, God, it's been a gigantic deal 
that God has called Abraham to leave his family and to leave his homeland and make this journey all the way across the Arabian Peninsula and land in the promised land. Big deal. They're finally here. Woo, woo, woo. Glory to God. We're in the land. We have arrived. God did not call him to run and leave the land the first time some difficulty arose. God did not call him to Egypt. And the first time things got a little tough, he ran to Egypt. The first little sign, he's taking a detour out of the will of God. And no sooner have they started their journey into Egypt, then crazy stuff starts going through Abraham's mind. And he starts thinking, I wonder what's going to happen when we get there. Because I've heard those Egyptians can be pretty rough. And I've got a hot wife. And Pharaoh loves having a big harem, and anybody that he sees that is attractive, he wants to add to his harem, and he's probably just going to see me as being in the way, and he'll probably just kill me and take my wife. Well, if he's going to get my wife anyway, I might as well go ahead and give him, give her to him, and then I can live, and we'll just move right on along. Do you realize what we've just said? Honey, I got a little bit of a surprise for you. When we get to Egypt... I'm just going to hand you over to the king. Let him do what he wants to with you because then he'll probably take pretty good care of me and he'll probably treat you pretty well too. That's your plan? That's a lousy vacation plan. Well, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. I want to know who her plastic surgeon was. She is in her 60s. It must be the guy Tom Cruise uses that she used to because... In her 60s, he knew that she was so attractive that they would pick her out. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace, and he treated Abram well for her sake. Oh, and listen, it's working out beautifully for Abram, it sounds like. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. Oh, the king was just lavishing gifts on Abraham for handing his sister over to him. But the Lord... Now remember what the fifth of the six promises was from the Lord? Abram is failing to protect his wife, but you remember what God's promise of protection was, the fifth promise? I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. That is a promise of protection. I'm going to look out for you, and if somebody tries to hurt you, I'm going to hurt them. That, that's pretty intimidating, isn't it? When the God of all the universe says, anybody touches you, they're going to answer to me. So when Abraham won't protect his own wife, God steps in. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. We don't know how he became aware of how these terrible things came on them. But somehow he realizes, this is because of that woman that I took. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. Chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock, in silver and gold. From the Negev... He went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. You remember Lot? 
Abraham didn't have any kids, but he had a nephew that he loved like a son. That's why he couldn't leave him in her, even though God said, leave your family. i got to take Lot. He's like my son. That son's going to be a major stumbling block, that pretend son. This is not the son of promise. Lot had been moving out with Abram, but he also had flocks and herds and tents. He, he experienced some stuff in Egypt, too. The land couldn't support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And so they parted company. And they essentially parted ways for the remainder of their days. Now, it's a peculiar little season in Abraham's life, but it is so instructive for us. And there are four things that I want you to notice from this story, lessons that, that we need to learn, notes that we need to take. The first, if you want to follow along in your outline, is just this, that major triumphs are frequently followed by major tests. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it's certainly true in Abraham's story, isn't it? He has just taken a gigantic step of faith to finally to have left his family, to leave his home and his homeland, and to finally go all the way to this foreign place he's never been to before, to step into the will of God, into the promise of God. And it's a great time of victory. I mean, you remember what God did? God appeared to him again. Now that he's arrived in this place and he reaffirmed his promises, it's, it's one of those face-to-face times with God where he hears from God and he hears the promises of God and it's, oh, yes, God is good and the blessing of God is such a good thing. And it's just like whiplash you're going to get because in just a, a blink, we go from the mountaintop to now there's a severe famine in the land. And Abraham's trying to figure out if they're going to starve to death. God's led us to a land that's going to be our land, an eternal inheritance for our family. We're going to become a great nation on this land. But before you can even feel like you've arrived good, there's a famine. Now, here's the curious thing. He's not a young man. He's somewhere 70, north of 75 at this point in his life. We don't have any record in the prior 75 years of his life, of there ever being a famine in Ur. When he was a pagan, living a comfortable life, we don't have any record of him having to endure a drought or a famine ever before. It's when he stepped out in faith and walked into the will of God that in the next blink, he's in the middle of a terrible crisis. And suddenly he's afraid. Suddenly he's worried. Suddenly he's thinking, we may starve because I took this crazy step. Have you ever been in a similar place like that? Where you did something in faith and you're just trusting that God's going to bless you, that God's going to show up because you took this step of faith. And for a brief time, you feel the joy of obedience. You know what I'm talking about? It's just that wonderful peace and joy of knowing that you've done what God called you to do. And it is kind of a mountaintop experience. But have you ever been where you've, you've gone to that place and you're thinking, and now I just know God's just going to be in this. He's going to be with me. It's just going to be blessed, blessed, blessed. And all of a sudden, difficulty comes your way. 
major financial problems, major marriage problems, major issues with your kids, trouble at work, whatever it is, it's just problems right in the middle of you doing the will of God. I don't know how many times I've heard people talk about in their personal finances and their their giving how just essentially the same kind of testimony that I've heard over and over of people saying, you know, I always struggled with giving. I was just kind of either not a giver or a token giver and just felt convicted for so long. And when I finally decided that I was going to begin to tithe, that God, from this point forward, at least the first tenth of whatever touches my hands, I'm going to give back to you. I realize it's yours, and I'm going to start being faithful in that. And like right off the bat, just feel the joy of obedience, the blessing of doing what they're supposed to be doing, and and how they'll, the testimony just sounds the same from so many people. And for a little while, it just seems so great, but within a month or two, bam, 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 one thing after the other. Like out of nowhere, suddenly, major car problems, major house repairs, major medical bills, and suddenly, we've got all these things looming over us that weren't there before. When I wasn't giving, when I wasn't tithing, we were rocking along okay. But when I said, okay, God, we're going to give what we feel like we can't really afford to give. We're trusting you to bless us. And we hit the season where it's like from every direction. We're getting bills we wouldn't normally get. What's up with that? Can I tell you what's up with that? When you step into a new level of obedience, frequently you're going to go through a little season, some weeks or months, where your faith is going to be tested. Your commitment is going to be tested. And it's not just in the area of finances. I mean, this can happen in relationships or so many other different areas. I mean, it, and it's, it's tempting in these times for us to feel like, well, I must have gotten it wrong. I, I must have been mistaken. I mean, don't you know Abraham must have thought that at some point? It's not like God gave him a map and said, okay, this is the boundary lines of the promised land that I'm going to give you. You've never been there before, but uh, this is so you'll know when you get there. He had arrived in his heart. He knew that he had arrived, but then suddenly he's in the middle of, of a great famine. Okay, maybe this ain't the promised land. Let's keep on moving south, honey. Maybe Egypt will be the promised land. No, it's not. But we're tempted in the middle of a crisis to feel like, well, we must have gotten something wrong. I mean, God wouldn't lead us to this, would he? You ever been to those places? You make an adjustment in your life, an adjustment in your career. You get out of a relationship that you've been convicted about for a long time anyway. You, you step away from something that you know you shouldn't have been in, and all of a sudden something difficult comes your way, and you're suddenly going, oh, well, maybe that wasn't the step I should have taken. No, maybe... You're just going through a season of testing because you're obeying the Lord. If you've been doing the, the daily devotional readings the, in the church-wide reading plan, you just finished the readings from Job this week. What about Job's story? He was a, a godly man, a righteous man, upright in all of his ways. And it wasn't because he was in rebellion or disobedience. He was a man who walked in the will of God. And because of his obedience... He experienced tremendous trials and difficulties on a level we don't want to think about. And he had to endure it for a season. But when that season was over, what happened? God doubled all the blessings that he had experienced before. There will be times in your life where major triumphs are followed by major tests. One of the verses in the New Testament is kind of, a, kind of an encouragement and victory verse for us. 
that we love to quote. I, I used it in a sermon about a month ago, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure. And that's, that's kind of a, a hopeful, victorious verse. And whatever the devil throws my way, whatever temptation comes... We're going to overcome because God's never going to let us be tempted beyond what we can stand. We're going to always win, right? But don't you hold on to verse 13 without remembering verse 12. We love to quote verse 13, and nobody seems to want to quote verse 12. Here's what Paul said in the preceding verse. If you think that you're standing firm, you had better be careful that you do not fall. That's a good warning for us, isn't it? When you think you have arrived spiritually, when you think you're just kicking the devils behind every day, just quoting scripture and just declaring the goodness of God and just stomping all over the enemy and just never going to stumble again, that's all well and good. But Paul said, if you think you're standing firm, you better be careful lest your very next step take you over the edge into a bad place. Because in the moments of triumph, we may be right on the verge of one of the biggest tests of our lives. Don't be surprised by that. Second truth to notice is that relying on common sense as your guide will often lead to regrettable detours, unnecessary detours. Don't you see how that happened for Abraham? I mean, you, you see how common sense is his guide at this point, don't you? He's in the promised land, and now there's a famine, a terrible famine. But he hears word that there's not a famine in Egypt. And it's not that many more miles to get from the promised land around to, to Egypt where there's food. Well, we don't have to pray about this, do we? Not much food where we are. Lots of food in Egypt. Common sense tells me I need to take my family and go to Egypt. Sounds good. Unless you pause to consider that you left God out of the equation. Did God lead you to Egypt or did God lead you to the land that he's going to give you? This is the same territory that 500 years later when Abraham and his descendants have now become 2 million people that when they get to the most desolate, barren, desert region of the promised land and there's no food and God's going to feed 2 million people for 40 solid years from the table of heaven. God is an expert at supplying our needs in seasons of famine. God actually loves for us to go through seasons of famine, not because we suffer, but because those are the seasons when we discover our job is not our source. That it is not your job that keeps food on your table and electricity in your house. It is not your job that keeps your air conditioning and your lights running. It is the faithful provision of God. And we only seem to learn that in seasons of famine. When our, our normal resources are not up to supplying our needs and we discover it is God who supplies our needs. Abraham was about to have a season where he was going to get to see the hand of God take care of his family and he was going to learn to trust God at a whole new level. But instead he, he said, let's take a little detour. Let, let's go on a little trip down to Egypt. I mean, common sense says there's food in Egypt. We should go where there's food. Makes good sense, doesn't it? I'm afraid it's what many of us would do. I'm afraid Mark would have been on that gravy train. I like to go where there's food. Vacation proved that last week. So they traipse off down there for food. 
And no sooner do they get there than this becomes more than just a decision to go to another place that God didn't say go to. Isn't it amazing how when you begin to make little compromises in your life, you start moving down a slippery slope, and once you lose traction, one thing leads to another. Here he is, the man of God, the father of the faith, and the moment that he starts stepping out of the call of God on his life, the next thing we know, he is willing to offer up his wife. We're not talking about him offering her up to be Pharaoh's escort at the next fancy dinner or festival that he puts on. You know exactly what Pharaoh wanted from Sarah. And Abraham offered her up. And we don't know how many months she stayed there. I mean, we don't want to think about this or talk about this. But yes, you, you can rest assured this is exactly what she's being handed over for. It's what you don't want to think about. And it wasn't just, whew, that was a close call, almost followed through and handed her over. No, he handed her over. Pharaoh was doing what he intended to do. And that is why disease and plague came upon them is because of what he was doing with Abraham's wife. It is a disturbing thing to realize when we begin to compromise we start making excuses how quickly one thing will lead to another and to another when we begin to lie, when we begin to fudge, when we begin to do it on our own terms. We start using logic to explain why this was really a good decision instead of listening for what the voice of God says or searching to see what the Word of God says. Four thoughts I want to share in relation to this that you'll notice in your notes. The first is this, logic and common sense will nearly always excuse compromise. When I've got to make a choice, and rather than seeking what the Lord has to say about this, this decision, when I just start trying to use logic to come to the best conclusion, common sense and logic. I don't know how many times I've heard Christians say, I didn't have to pray about this. I mean, God's the one who gave me common sense. That is one of the dumbest comments we could ever make. Common sense has led more Christians to destructive choices than anything I can think of. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so much higher are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. So when we think for a minute that our common sense is going to lead us to the decision that God would have us make, we are fooling ourselves. Logic. I, I, I can explain away the worst decisions of my life in the moment, anytime. I can come up with some logical explanation for why this compromise or this choice was the right thing to do in the moment. I don't remember who first said it, but it's so true. Faith is living without scheming. Because when you live by faith, you just operate by what the Word has said and by what the Holy Spirit is leading in. And then you don't have to scheme and connive and figure out and explain. No, it's just this is where God has led. And if it doesn't make sense to you... You know, I have to admit, sometimes it doesn't make sense to me, but I know in my heart that God's led me to do this thing. And so I'm not going to have to try and scheme and reason away why I'm going to fail to do what God called me to do. The third thing I'll say about that is we see Abraham began to, to be driven by fear rather than by faith. You see that, don't you? I mean, now that he's done what God told him to do, we might starve. I've got to take care of my family. I mean, that's my first priority. I've got to make sure that my family is fed. 
And when he begins to operate by fear, he starts making decisions that he's got to reason away. It's been a while, hasn't it, since we have seen the attention of the entire planet so fixed on one thing, causing as much fear as what we're experiencing right now. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I guess 9-11 is the last time that we have seemed to be so focused on any one thing as we are on COVID-19, the coronavirus. The stock market in one week has moved from record highs to a full correction mode now as a result of one thing, fear of the coronavirus. People are living in terrible fear over this thing now. And it's, it's weird what fear will begin to do to us. I mean, I, I'll just step out on a limb and say, I, I bet that for multiple people, thoughts like this have been creeping in. You know, I thought up until about a week ago, God may be calling me to go to Nigeria on a mission trip in August. Or God may be calling me to go next year to Guatemala on a mission trip. But there's no way God could call me to do that right now with this coronavirus thing. I mean, the Lord didn't realize that when he was talking to me about Nigeria. He didn't see that one coming. I am sure he is rethinking his position on Nigeria right now because he was not expecting the coronavirus. I mean, we laugh about it, but isn't that essentially what we do with stuff? I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was seriously thinking, I came up here and maybe even let people pray for me about going to Nigeria. But I mean, now the coronavirus is here and Jesus, let's get real. That's worse than a famine in the land. I mean, I am pretty sure Jesus would bless me in the United States come August better than he would in Nigeria. And Look, I'm not trying to be the voice of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't know who's supposed to go and who's supposed to stay. And it may be that our plans have to be altered at some point. But I do know this. We will not reason ourselves into the will of God. Tragically, sometimes we'll reason ourselves out of the will of God. And I do know this. Fear cannot be the thing that drives our decisions because fear works in opposition to faith. And, and operating in faith doesn't mean that we always do the thing that looks most courageous or most foolish. No, faith means that we do the thing that lines up with what God is saying to us. And it means that we can't just make a decision based on what the news says or based on what seems to make good sense. There are lots of decisions that we'll make that don't seem to make good sense. It seems like finances have become the great test of this so much of the time because it's the thing we worry about. You know, we, we make a commitment to give, and then difficulty comes, and we get afraid. What if I can't pay my bills? What if I can't take care of this? What if I can't take care of that? Do we think that God didn't take that into account when he led us to commit to something that was going to require sacrifice. And now it becomes a test. Am I going to live by faith or am I going to live by fear? Am I going to live by sight, what I can prove in advance I can cover, or am I going to operate by faith and say, God, I'm going to do what I feel like you led me to do, and I'm going to trust you and watch to see what you do now. Abraham went through a season where he's driven by fear. And as a result, Abraham moved from bringing blessings to bringing judgment on others. Isn't that the sad part of the story? God has said of Abraham, not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to make you a blessing. And in fact, all the peoples of the earth ultimately are going to be blessed through you and your family line. 
This is a part of what's so cool about belonging to the family of God. Some of the promises to Abraham are promises that get passed right on down to us. You realize we've been grafted in. So we, we actually, once you come to faith in Christ, the scripture says you become a part of the family of Abraham. You are grafted in to become a part of Abraham's line so that you now receive the promises to Abraham so that you now are going to be made a blessing. You're not just going to be blessed. You're going to be a blessing. And other peoples around you and in other nations are going to be blessed through you and your life. And what's so sad is when we have the opportunity to have all those things be true, but we begin to be driven by fear instead of faith. And so, and so the result is instead of ushering in blessings on other people, judgment comes instead. Suffering comes with our presence. I mean, that's heartbreaking to consider. Abraham was supposed to be a blessing wherever he went. And instead, what happened in Egypt as a result of his presence? People are getting sick. People are breaking out in sores. Or, you know, bad stuff is happening because Abraham is here. And he brought his compromises with him. Third truth. The benefits derived from compromise will usually harm us in the end. Not because God is angry and, and holding a grudge. That's not what we're talking about. It's just the reality of life in a moral universe that God created, which reflects his goodness. When we choose to compromise, as Abraham did, and we think, well, I still came out pretty good. We, I derived all these benefits from that. They usually will come back to bite us in the end. And they surely did in Abraham's case. What we read says that Abram goes to, to Egypt and offered up his wife. And in response, Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And we look at that and think, well, he actually came out kind of scot-free. I mean, poor old Sarah would feel bad about her. She's going to need to go to therapy for a while probably because of all this. But Abraham, he came out really rich and powerful as a result. So did Lot. And it seems on the surface that they came away unscathed unless you read the rest of the story carefully. And I want you to notice that there are three things that when they left Egypt became the real, the real price tag for Abraham and Lot for having ever compromised and taken this detour. The first one is the thing that looks like it's going to be a blessing in the first place, and it is the riches. Let's just be honest about it. We all, almost all, believe that if we had more money, we'd be more happy. If we had more stuff, if we had more wealth, that we would have a better life. We, we believe that. It's why people buy lottery tickets. It's why people just try so hard to accumulate more and more because if I have more, I'll be more happy. And yet we've, we've all watched the same thing. It's actually one of the more tragically predictable things in life, and that is whenever someone who's never had a great deal or just you know kind of been very, very middle class, and they suddenly come into a large sum of money, how much of the time it destroys some of the most important relationships that they've ever had. I mean, it's crazy how predictable it is. People who've been able to get along pretty well until there's suddenly a bunch of money injected into the equation and before you know it 
they're divorcing or brothers and sisters don't talk to each other anymore. Parents and kids won't have anything to do with each other. If you haven't ever seen it, pay attention to what happens when somebody dies and they actually had a significant amount of money or, or land or valuable home or something. And suddenly people that you thought got along just fine, they can't get along at all anymore because there's wealth in the equation. Wealth is not evil. The evil is bound up in our hearts in the form of the love of money. But it's wealth that suddenly separates Abram and Lot. They were like a father and son. But from the time that they acquire this and they leave, it says the land can't support them, and they and their servants just can't get along. It says quarreling arose, and it obviously wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And Abraham finally just had to say, Son, it just this isn't going to work. Now that we've acquired all of this, it's obvious we're going to need to go our separate ways. And I'm not going to run too far ahead and spoil next week, but it, you need to come back for next week. They wind up parting company and never really coming back together again. And it all started with this detour and the wealth that came as a result of it. So the wealth is the first major thing that came back to bite them. The second thing, I just have to sum up this way. They clearly experienced some things in Egypt that they were not experiencing in the, in the Holy Land. They went into a pagan culture where some things were okay that aren't okay. It didn't take hold of Abraham's heart, but it clearly took hold of Lot's heart. And when Abraham realized we've made a bad mistake and we better get out of here and go back to where God said we should be, Abraham took Lot out of Egypt, but he was never able to take Egypt out of Lot. Lot experienced some things that changed how he looked at life and people and what he wanted. And for the rest of his days, he lived in chaos. Because when options were put in front of him as to which direction he wanted to go, he always wanted to go in a direction that was so unhealthy. And as a result, there was so much evil and incest. I mean, when you get on into the Lot story, as we will next week, I mean, he's willing to offer up his virgin daughters to, to a riotous mob for them to do sexually with him anything that they want to. I mean, his, his own daughters having sex with him. I mean, it's, it's just a horrible story. And it all starts with the detour into Egypt where he experienced who knows what and you never got Egypt out of his heart and mind. But there's a third little piece to this that you may have missed in reading the story. It says that of the gifts that were given to Abraham as a result of the favor of Pharaoh, that among those things were a variety of different possessions, sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants that he was given while he was in Egypt. Seems harmless enough. So for the coming years, he's just got all these flocks. He's got all these servants. Surely that's all good, right? Seems fine until we fast forward three and a half chapters. Genesis 16:1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Anybody recognize that name? Oh, she was that cute little slave girl that we picked up in Egypt. 
Well, you know, honey, I'm getting old. Pretty obvious I'm never going to be the one that's going to give you a son. But I'm going to give you my servant girl, Hagar. World history changed on that compromise. Wars are still being fought today. People will die this week in the Middle East because of this compromise. The entire Arab-Israeli conflict that has gone on for thousands of years goes right back to this compromise. We just took a little detour down to Egypt. We picked up a little girl named Hagar. A few years down the line, Hagar has grown up to be a really attractive Egyptian woman. Well, honey, I don't guess it'll hurt anything. We want you to have a son. Here you go. Little compromises that seem like they benefited us along the way in the end will come back to bite us most of the time. How careful are we to guard against little compromises? We're in tax season right now. Wouldn't it be scary to know how many of us will only report what we know the government can track? And how many people will be careful to report everything that they made this year? Well, preacher, what are you talking about? It's just good stewardship to pay as little taxes as you can. Is it good stewardship or is it lying and cheating? I knew that wasn't going to get any amens. I didn't expect any applause on that. It's scary when you start thinking about it, the things that we get comfortable with. The lies that we'll tell, I just didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. It just wouldn't have done any good to tell the truth. When we start compromising because there's some benefit to be derived, you better know that benefit will usually in the end be more costly than beneficial. Abram's story is just a reminder of that. So what's the lesson in this? Let's, let's move on to that. The lesson from Abram's story is this. Never abandon your altar or your trust in God. The conclusion of this part of the story is so profound. When God just made it clear, you were so far off course, and thankfully God intervened. God spared Sarah and pulled her out of this terrible situation. He sends them packing. So from the Negev, they continued traveling. Such an interesting little phrase. Traveling by stages toward Bethel. And they pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where they had camped before. This was the same place where Abram had built the altar, and there he worshiped the Lord again. I told you when we started this series, Abraham's life is kind of defined by two things. His tents... And his altars. Here he is, this man, greatly blessed by God. All these huge promises. Taking possession of a land. But he's never going to get to build a house. He's never going to build a mansion. He's never going to build a fort or a castle. He's going to live in tents. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 goes back and points to an important theological truth in this. That he was a pilgrim. He was a man on the move, following the will of God, and he had to live in a tent to do it. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with owning a house or having any stability in your life, but it is a reminder that you can't stay where you are and go with God. You've got to, in a sense, be willing to live in tents, to always be flexible, to adjust to what God has next, because he's not just going to stay in one place and do one thing forever. You're going to have to be willing to flex and adjust to move with God. His tents and his altars defined his life. Wherever God took him, 
He always built an altar, and he made seeking God, worshiping God, honoring God, listening for the voice of God, the center of his life, until that day when he left that place outside of Bethel, and he just headed, hightailing it for Egypt. And we don't see anything about him building altars or seeking the Lord until he leaves Egypt, and he says he finally goes back to the last place that he built an altar, and once again, he sought the Lord and he worshiped the Lord. He, his heart came back to God. Now, one of the things I love about the Old Testament is that it is so rich with word pictures. And I told you when we started reading, to take notice of the phrase, it actually, in the whole story, if you read more than what we read today, it's a phrase that appears over and over and over about how they camped between Bethel and Ai, just outside of Bethel. I don't want to go too far with this, but I do think it's a, a word picture that we're, we're supposed to pay attention to. So I'm going to give you a 30-second Hebrew lesson. Every time, you know, when you're in the Old Testament, when you see El, E-L, it's a reference to God. El means God. So, you know, El Shaddai, God Almighty. Elohim, the living God. Everything El is God. So Beth El is the house of God. Beth, B-E-T-H, always means house. So like Bethlehem, Bethlehem is house of bread, Bethel, the house of God. On the one hand, we have Bethel, the house of God. On the other side, we have Ai, or in Hebrew, high, and it means ruin or destruction. Over and over, the writer of Genesis says Abram is camped between the house of God and the place of ruin or destruction. And when they've gone into Egypt and they return to a place of worshiping God, Lot cannot stay with him. And Abram says, you choose. You choose whether you're going to go to the left or to the right. Whether you'll go to Bethel, to the house of God, or to the city of ruin. And it says, I'm jumping ahead to next week, but Lot looks this way and goes, eh, not so much. And he looks this way. And sees high Sodom and Gomorrah and goes, hmm, looks a lot like Egypt. Methinks I would like to go there. And that's exactly what he does. Abraham goes in the other direction. He returns to the house of God. Friends, tell me that that is not a picture of what happens so many times at the crossroads moments of our lives where there is a decision that is put before us and there's something really shiny, sexy, comfortable over here on the one hand and on the other hand is the house of God and the people of God. And we have to make a choice. We have to choose how we're going to live our lives and where we're going to live our lives because you just can't really live with a foot in each camp. You've got to decide, am I going to Bethel or am I going to this shiny place that looks a lot like Bourbon Street or Las Vegas or, I mean, you name it, fill in the blank. You get the feel for it. You understand why Lot loved the attraction over here. And in his heart, Abram knew, I already got a taste of that in Egypt. Bethel is calling my name. I've just returned to the altar. I've just come back to God, and everything in my heart says, I can't go over here. My life will be ruined. Destruction will, will be my legacy. I've got to return to the house of God 
and the people of God. The lesson in this narrative is never abandon your altar. Never abandon your trust in God. What does it mean to to abandon your altar? It means that the altar represents for us the point of personal connection with God. It's a part of what happens when we worship God together like this. This is part of our altar experience that we get still in the presence of God and we listen for God to speak to us. Sometimes through the preached word, sometimes through what's being sung, sometimes through testimonies, but other times just the presence of God, being among the family of God, that God speaks to us and presses things on us. I mean, how many of you have ever had that happen in church, raise your hand, that just as I have worshiped with other people, boy, God just came near me and it impacted me and it, it, it reshaped the direction of my life. I can't count how many times that's happened to me. Other parts of, of the altar are the times that you spend daily with God, just being in His presence, in His Word, spending time in prayer and just being still and listening for the voice and the leadership of God. Returning to the altar means keeping God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the truth of His Word as our God at the center of our lives. And so many times what He's going to say through those experiences will not line up to what we're seeing around us. Some of you know that our oldest son, Morgan, headed out about a month ago to Oregon. He had been in Sarasota, Florida, doing uh, his flight training, been in helicopter school. He got his private license, and now he's shipped out to Oregon to do his advanced training to get his commercial and instructor's licenses. And it's a pretty intensive thing to do that. We're excited for him that he's doing that. But he is moving on to the more advanced stuff now. He's done the um, the VFR training, and this week he moves on to the actual flight time for the IFR training. And, and for those of you who don't speak aviation speak, VFR is is about visual flight rules where you can operate by what you see, and the more basically trained pilots, that's what they operate in. They have to operate where you can see what you're doing and, and where you can operate not just by instruments but by what you see. IFR training means that you can fly under conditions where you can't see anything around you, where you're ready, you're equipped to deal with storms or fog or darkness or whatever, where you can't rely on what your eyes can see outside of the cockpit at all, but you are so well trained that you can fly by only what the instruments are telling you. And so, Jackie, we were having, uh, she was having a phone conversation with Morgan last night, and she didn't realize part of what I realized that he was stepping into this week. And he was explaining, yeah, I'll be taking, I'll start taking my flight starting this Tuesday for IFR. And he was explaining about that, what he was going to be doing. He said, yeah, they, they put a hood on you so you can't see outside of the cockpit. It's really goofy looking if you've ever seen anybody who's wearing the, it's, it's a huge visor that comes way down like this so that all you can see is just like right down here. Only the instruments. You cannot see. It comes down around you. You can't see outside the cockpit at all. The only thing you can see in the helicopter or the plane where you're doing IFR training is the instruments. So you're flying, and you can't see anything. You can't see what's up and what's down. Jackie's like, you're, you're pulling my leg. They, they wouldn't do that to you. They're not going to send you up in a helicopter in a hood. They love to you know, pull tricks on their mom. So she's like, I know you're kidding me. He's like, no, Mom. You, know, you can look it up. And you can see it on. So I showed her a picture of it this morning. I said, this is what he's going to be wearing Tuesday when he goes up flying. That's not what a mom wants to hear. The reason that I tell you that little story is an illustration. 
when you return to your altar and you decide that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop taking my own detours where I figure out my life and I make my own plans, where no, I'm just going to let the Lord be my guide and I'm going to trust what he says and I'm going to follow that, it is very, very much like putting on that visor for IFR training. You don't get to fly by sight anymore. You don't just get to look around and go, oh, I see what I need. I need to go over here. Oh, I need to dodge this. No, your eyes do not get to be your guide. The voice of God is your guide. He becomes your instrument panel. Sometimes your eyes are going to mis- misguide you. Sometimes your, your logic is going to misguide you, and you're going to have to learn. It's going to take time. I said it was an interesting phrase that we just read, that it said, in stages... Abraham began to move toward Bethel, the house of God. Isn't it interesting how many times our lives will look like that? We'd love to just say, all right, today I'm going to say it. Jesus, I'm just going to live by faith. I'm just going to trust you. No, it's going to take some stages of faith where you gradually learn more and more to live with a, a visor on and say, I'm not going to walk by, fi- by sight. I'm not going to. I'm not going to make decisions based on what I can figure out and the math that I can do on our finances. And I'm not going to plan my career and my future and my family on what I can see. I am going to stay on my knees. I'm going to continue to carry things before the Lord and say, God, what do you say about this? Do I go? Do I stay? Do we, do we give this? Do we, do we not? Do I stay in this relationship? Do I need to move away from it? God, I'm going to do my best every day to put this visor on and to just tune in to what you're saying. What are you telling me in your word? What are you telling me through your spirit? What are you telling me through the counsel of pastors and elders and small group leaders and the the voice of the church speaking into my life? What are you telling me? Because I want those to be my instruments that guide me. I want you speaking to me. I've done it on my own terms. And when I've just let my eyes and my mind be my guide, I've wandered to Egypt. I've gotten far from you. I don't want to see a show of hands, but I mean, if we ask the question, how many of us have wandered to Egypt somewhere along the way? A lot of us would have to raise our hands. But there have been seasons in my life where, whether it was gross rebellion or just just thinking, I can figure this out. I got this. And we got ourselves in a terrible pickle because we took control. We tried to look around and figure it out, and we made our own choices. And we wound up in compromising situations and looked up and realized Man, whatever happened to my relationship with God? When's the last time I've even felt like I've heard the voice of God or felt the presence of God in my life? And you know there's only one remedy for that. There's only one. You've got to go back to where you left him. God didn't go anywhere. When Abraham left Egypt and he went back to where he had last camped and met God, God was right there ready to meet him. It says he went back to Bethel and he called on the name of the Lord and suddenly things were restored. God shows up and he begins to speak again and again. And you know the most mind-blowing thing about that? God didn't say, well, I'm really disappointed in you, Abraham. Never would have thought it of you. Didn't see this coming at all. So you know those six promises I made to you? Now you're going to get three of them. None of that. God continued to appear to Abraham again and again and again. And you know what he did? He reassured him of every one of those promises. And when he finally had the son of promise, God made those same promises to Isaac. And when he had a son of promise, he made those same promises to Jacob. God was faithful to his promises. All Abraham had to do was come back to the Lord. He had to return to his altar and make 
seeking God, the central part of his life. And I want to tell you, that's all you and I have to do. That's the central piece. Now, he may direct us to do some things to to get healthier that are going to be specific. But I want to tell you, it all hinges on this one piece. Will you come back to God? Will you make the altar the central piece of your life and your existence again? Would you join me as we turn to the Lord together in prayer? God, thank you that you are so good and so patient, that you're the all-seeing one. Thank you for all the times and ways when you have detoured us around painful experiences. We're grateful for that. But thank you for just the fact that when we're the ones who've taken side roads and detours that got us off course, you didn't give up on us. You didn't abandon us. You're the one who's stayed steady and just called us to return. And I pray that right now, by the work and voice of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to some of our hearts that have wandered and strayed and just feel far from you. I pray that you'd help us to just see you with open arms, ready to welcome us back home. I pray that you'd help us to see how we can press into you and return to you. Maybe you're at a place, whether you're here in this room or watching and listening online, of realizing, I've never come for the very first time to that point of having God at the center of my life. But I think I'd like to try that. Why don't you just say that to God? That you're ready to step into a relationship with Him? It's not complicated. Why don't you just pray a simple prayer like this that says, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I'm giving up control. The best I know how, I'm taking my hands off the wheel. And I'm inviting you to now take control. Would you forgive me? Would you save me? And would you lead me? God, I thank you for hearing and answering those prayers. For some of us who are at a place, we know you, we've known what it's like to be close to you, but have just wandered away from that. I pray that even now you would give us gifts of faith and eyes to see what you still have for us. If you need a fresh start with God, why don't you just tell him that from your heart? Just tell him you you want to make a, a clean, fresh start. If there's forgiveness that you need to ask for from God, ask him for it. He's ready to give it. God, thank you for your grace and for your love. I pray that you would help us to press into you. I pray the very words that we're about to, to sing of sweet hour of prayer, that that would just become a daily reality for us, that we would return to sweet moments spent alone with you, spent with your people in seeking you. And God, thank you that you'll be faithful to show up. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome your work and your voice in this time, and we pray it in Jesus' name.